Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm four tracks into Fetch the Bolt Cutters mm-hmm. from We All Know Who, mm-hmm. one of the women who's had a great influence on my life, <laughs> along mm-hmm. with Annie DeFranco and Tori Amos, none other than Fiona Apple. I started listening to it this morning. And I've been so excited to listen to it and jonesing for it to come out, right, Ed. And yet it's here now and I'm four tracks in and I have to take it in bursts, I realise. It's like a kind of um, high intense, uh, high emotional intensity interval training. Like mm-hmm. I, I need to like go at it as hard as I can for as long as I can to exhaustion and then stop and then come back. Um, yeah. Because I feel like every song is is genuinely so powerful I can't listen to it in one sitting just yet mm. but it's amazing and of all the people to come forward with a record of this time it's someone who's kind of been living in a quasi-quarantine anyway and there's something lovely about hearing her dogs on the record and like only being with a few people and the stuff that she's doing with her voice now there's a really incredible vulture um, interview with her um, and it seems like she's really managed to kind of genuinely free herself um, I'm a big fan of anything that quotes TV or film and mm-hmm. uh, I mean the full second series was really patchy but if it means that we have this album I'll forgive everything. How are you Ed? I'm good, I've also been listening to Fetch the Bolt Cutters a fair bit I, I've i not listened to it all the way through in a single sitting, I have kind of been taking it in pieces because it is it is such a it's such a good album and also I think any time you have an artist who works kind of infrequently in the way that Fiona Apple does, or that she releases work infrequently the way that Fiona Apple does, there's always such a sense of anticipation and there's such a complicated feeling thinking, Oh my god, this is like a new thing from this person who doesn't put out new things very often. Mm. <laughs> but even if you're super digging the album as I can you you want to really kind of like soak it in and kind of appreciate it and for me what I like about the album a lot and what I like about a lot of, of pretty much all of Fiona Apple's work is there's this wonderful tension to so much that she does where it feels incredibly intimate and like you're she's singing directly to you in a venue that you know you're the only people in but that venue is like the tree that's traveling through space in the fountain (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect uh, it's such a kind of like her voice is so kind of like sparse and raw and has this yeah like like i said intimacy to it but then sonically like it it all sounds so kind of like huge in a way that is just really really powerful and overwhelming to me and it's been really it's just so nice seeing people react so positively to that album and people being some people getting their first exposure to her because obviously as i said she's someone who you know this is her first album in eight years and before that there was like a seven year gap so people now who are in their like early early to mid 20s who may not have known who fiona raffle was because you know she put out one album 
when they were teens and another one when they were like at school it's been really nice seeing people kind of like discover her work and realize oh this this person who's put out like four perfect albums previously has made a fifth perfect album like great you've got a lot a lot of stuff to discover not an overwhelming amount of stuff to discover but like some stuff that will really enrich your life i agree i think there's something really nice in the contrast between her spaces between albums because I don't want to call them gaps right because that sounds Mm. like emptiness and it's not because she's living and being a human being within that time yes I might be reading a lot of stuff about productivity and maybe how we're all junkies yes Ed I'm doing great in lockdown thank you so much (laughs) but the contrast between the space she takes between making albums and taking her time with them because she started writing stuff for this album maybe what four years ago maybe Mm -hmm. and and one song you know she had the idea for when she was about 14 um but her insistence on releasing the album now rather than wait until october i love the Mm -hmm. idea that it's like it's done and it has to be out now not oh you know it's been eight years what's another three months she's like no (laughs) no so thank you thank you ms apple what else have you been doing kind of like uh culturally i have been uh, enjoying reading the book Console Wars, which is a between Sega and Nintendo in the 90s, and is great because it's just like people like competing against each other, and it's this great like even though I'm like a massive Nintendo nerd and everything, it's really nice reading like a story that takes a perspective of like Sega were the underdogs, Nintendo had like 90% of the games industry to themselves and were like massively anti-competitive and Sega came and kind of gave them a bloody nose and kind of really shifted the direction of an industry. Uh, but it's also, there's just like really funny little stories in there, like stuff I, I never realised like uh, uh, Donkey Kong originally started out as a Popeye game um, which when I read that I was like oh yeah like that totally makes sense like all three of the characters in Donkey Kong track perfectly like Popeye climbing up Bluto grabbing olive oil and kind of like running away and you pursuing him over levels and I, th- I thought that seems like something I should have known because it's like super obvious um, factoid that's incredible I love a good non-fiction games book I think, mm-hmm. I think for some reason it suits the medium really well. Yeah, because it's like, like obviously, you know, I work in the games industry, it's very important to me, and I, I, I think that there is a tremendous amount of art involved in the production of video games and everything. But they are kind of like, particularly this period you're talking about where console gaming's in its infancy and there's not a huge amount of power going into these things. Like, the games themselves are fairly low stakes and fairly kind of, like, silly. But the people who are involved are like you know high-powered executives who are like really hard charging and trying to like take each other down and there's lots of like boardroom scenes of people trying to be like how can we take down mario and things <laughs> stuff like that um which is why i think it'll probably because uh, i think it's currently being adapted one as a documentary film and then one as a tv series from sev rogan and evan goldberg and i could see it working pretty well as both but i think as a tv series there'd be a lot of fun to be had if you did if you kind of like played up the contrast between the high stakes boardroom drama and like then just like people being amazed at how fast sonic moves surely the way to take down mario is wario is that just me mm, yes it's been a while Although he's not been that successful mm. thus far yes could be could be a big one soon in, t- <laughs> in terms of uh, iconic this is going to be quite 
I need to take a stretch before this reach. Uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, iconic games, cartoon characters, basically the most dubious cultural thing I've done in lockdown as of yet, uh, Ed, is this morning I watched an American high school theatre arts production of a play called Mr. Burns by Anne Washburn. Because, mm-hmm. oh God, I wanted to see this play years ago, but I haven't been able to catch any production that's been touring or that's on, and I haven't read the play script yet, which is odd, because normally if I can't see a play and I'm really eager to engage with it, I'll just buy the play script and then look forward to seeing it another time. Um, so for some reason I didn't do that, and for some reason this morning was the time to watch a sort of nearly two-hour play set in a post-apocalyptic sort of wasteland going years ahead uh, and a group of people trying to remember and tell each other about an episode of The Simpsons, namely Cape <laughs> Fear. Um, yeah, I can't tell if it's because uh, it's a high school production, if it's the play itself, or the fact that I'm watching it on YouTube in lockdown, <laughs> desperately needing something to make me feel better. But it, I didn't gel with it <laughs> that, mm. that much. The last act was quite moving, to me in certain parts but i did feel like homer at the opera for most of it you were you were hoping for oh no that's ballet i was gonna say you're hoping for the bear in the car (laughs) we're all hoping (laughs) for the bear in the car (laughs) (laughs) opera ballet doesn't matter i want to get out in that parking lot and see a friend uh even if it will (laughs) uh even if it will bring in the highest tax raise in u.s history (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're here we're queer we don't want any more bears <laughs> it's, it's a it's a winning slogan you've got to admit um i've yeah. also in less um uh, cry for help uh cultural activity i have been giving devs alex garland's new foray and tv ago because it's mm-hmm. um fx but is on iplayer just now because BBC seem to have done a sweet deal with FX, which is great because it means it brings me Pose and um, oh, cool, cool dancer people, lovely Michelle Williams and Sam Rockwell. Oh, uh, uh, Fossey Verdon. Thank you, Ed. Oh, is anyone else finding it really hard to remember anything just now? Yes, Fossey <laughs> Verdon. Devs, I'm not too sure about. I think Alex Garland is incredible when he's given um, a film. Like, Annihilation mm. is stunning, and I still think about it probably uh, two to three times a week at the moment. And in TV format, I think he's got a little bit too much room to play. It looks mm. beautiful. I like everyone in the cast, but it's quite monotonous, and the pace is glacial just now. Mm. And it's ten episodes, I think, so it should feel taut, right? Like, that's a mini series. Yeah. But everyone seems to have the same kind of tone and I'm I want a little bit more humour to it because mm. like Ex Machina definitely did, Annihilation did a bit, and I think there's so much to be had in like a satire or a criticism of Silicon Valley and tech and these people that, you know, are shaping the world that we live in whether we like it or not beyond governments basically um mm. that's not particularly necessarily um benevolent ngos and and you know corporations and stuff 
but there's not really that it's more leaning into a kind of sci-fi thing and as I'm getting a little bit further into it trying to figure out what the you know mysterious devs department actually does I'm like if it's gonna be this then it's a little bit it just feels a bit overblown a bit contrived maybe he's gonna pull a massive left turn on me and I will be eating my words um because god knows there's plenty of them and they will last me a while <laughs> but I I'm not sure I'm not sold I think I haven't watched any of Deb's. Yeah, uh, I do really want to, but there's I've got lots of Dead Cells to play. That's mainly what I've been doing. <laughs> but, um, I I do wonder if like it maybe suffers a little bit from trying to do somewhat seriously, you know, kind of a takedown of Silicon Valley in the wake of the TV show Silicon Valley, like really effectively eviscerating just what a bumbling bunch of idiots we have unfortunately put in charge of the world <laughs> um, there are and like that show you know had it it's kind of peaks and valleys in terms of quality but generally it's perspective of these people have been given tremendous power and they are all just like raving narcissists or totally incompetent is like a really effective criticism of of silicon valley itself mm. and that it's kind of going to be hard to try and do seriously that in the same way that you know studio 60 on the sunset strip really couldn't distinguish itself once it was put up against 30 rock where everyone was like this show kind of is perhaps more incisive about the way that comedy works than what aaron sorkin's working with and also the sketches are bad because they're supposed to be bad as opposed to the fact that aaron sorkin can't write sketch comedy mm-hmm. it seems or more kind of historically, you know, like Strange Love coming out the same year as Failsafe, where it's kind of yeah. like, it's re- even though Failsafe is a terrific movie, it's really hard to kind of watch a serious movie about, um, you know, kind of like people trying to deal with the the threat of nuclear an- annihilation once you've seen kind of like Peter Sellers kind of shout, my Führer, I can walk, <laughs> all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, the only other thing, kind of like culturally, I've done other than like I said, playing Dead Cells and also playing through the Uncharted games, which um, are free. If people have a PS4, you can just download them for free until the end, of, until mid March, um, and they're good fun. Um, the only other thing I've kind of done this week was I watched um, Abre Los Ojos or Open Your Eyes, the movie by uh, Alejandro Amenabar, which was later remade as Vanilla Sky, which I hadn't seen despite being a big fan of Vanilla Sky. I'd never seen the original, and the original is really... It's, re- it's really good. It's essentially the same movie, like, down to certain shot choices. <laughs> like, it's it's really incredible how much Cameron Crowe really took the, 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 the... Like, not just, obviously, the basic premise, but, you know, so many of, like visual ideas from that movie um in a way that would feel um blatant but i guess like the movie was probably not that not that well known in the u.s so (laughs) he probably felt like he could get away with it um some things i think have a little less impact like i was saying to you beforehand the shot of empty streets of madrid just as someone who is never used to seeing madrid in general has less impact than the empty streets of uh, of Times Square because you're so used to seeing Times Square just full of people and the music in it even though there's a really great Massive Attack song on the soundtrack the music has less of a kind of impact on me than the music for Vanilla Sky does which like was a real kind of great collection of songs and artists that I love um, I think that the main thing that really interested me about them 
about the film um, was what an interesting contrast it makes to its remake in the the remake because it has a huge budget and it's this Hollywood glossy movie with Tom Cruise the whole thing kind of feels unreal and dreamlike whereas all of Abre Los Osos doesn't have that it doesn't have that that sheen or gloss to it it feels real all the way through so it's quite interesting they both take this subtly different approach to the notion of like reality and dreams and fantasy blending together and they do have kind of like a different texture as a result Mm. and also whilst watching it i was reminded of there's a there's a great tweet that i love which is um think of a fox wrong it's smaller than that <laughs> um, and for me i just kind of thinking think of penelope cruz no she's prettier than that like <laughs> just watching it's like oh right yes she is like there's a reason why i've had a crush on her for like most of my life <laughs> uh we do have a tiny bit of news this week mainly you know like we've been saying we're kind of being a little more uh, reactive with news about whether or not to cover it because there's so much other news going on and not a huge amount of stuff in terms of like people announcing projects and things like that understandably um, but there are a few stories this week that were quite interesting the one um, that you brought to my attention that I thought was really really cool uh, was that Parasite has been doing gangbuster numbers for Hulu in the US where it has been playing on the platform for a few weeks now and was kind of like much ballyhooed by them as being like hey you you know, we have the exclusive streaming rights to parasite this movie that was you know kind of like this historic uh, best picture win and i think it's it's really really fascinating seeing a movie like that which has already done like so well in theaters and has been so embraced by us it's just a wide way of people continuing to have this second life in streaming once you take it outside of the 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 confines of the art house cinema where for for better or worse i feel like there is a certain gatekeepery thing going on with art house theaters in terms of like movies being able to break out and really find a big audience yeah it's really interesting isn't it it made me think of this charlie brooker article a while ago where when kindles first came out Mm-hmm. And there was quite a backlash and a real sort of real books are the way forward, which again is often a cry from the people who think reading is a substitute for a personality. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it's not just Kindles, it's ebooks in general. And you get this a lot with audiobooks as well, like some really like ableist, like hor- horrible sort of views <laughs> crawl out of the woodwork. But Charlie Brooker was talking about the thing about Kindle is that you cannot judge a book by its cover because you can't Mm. see the cover yes you can judge a kindle by its kindle cover fair enough (laughs) um but it allowed people to only broadcast that they had a kindle you wouldn't be able to tell what they were reading Mm. so it's that idea of like oh dancing like nobody's watching (laughs) consuming like nobody's judging and i wonder if a lot of people, particularly now, that we are all ourselves under... <laughs> we've not got options, but, <laughs> but it's basically... Um, we've not got the option of going outside, but I wonder how many people who might feel intimidated or priced out of going to an art house mm. cinema to see Parasite on what would have been a limited release if it didn't get the Oscar boost. But now it's a film that, in terms of its content... Is highly critical of the structures of the world. 
features a lot of people stuck in one house <laughs> and has so much buzz about it whether now that's actually it's such a great pick and, and a lot of people feel that they're able to watch it in a way that mm. maybe they couldn't before because of exactly that kind of like oh I'm not the sort of person who would go to that sort of cinema which generally means I'm not welcome or there's a barrier to my access there mm. and also there is it's just like in terms of availability even though I think when it was doing well in the award ceremonies and everything like that uh, Parasite did get a bit of boost in terms of theatres it wasn't like it was playing in everywhere no um, and if it did, it like maybe only for like a week or two to kind of really capitalise on the fact that it had done so well at the Oscars. So it was very much limited to like it would be on a few times a day in a megaplex, or it'd be playing at art house cinemas. And a lot of places, certainly in the US, don't have ready access to an art house cinema. Whereas, like, not to say that everyone has the internet and everyone has Hulu, but like a lot more people have ready access to to the internet and to Hulu than they would normally and yeah I, I do feel like it removes a lot of the the barriers to entry that people may have of just being like oh we can just put this on and check it out in our home instead of the the expense of going to an art house cinema because even though i love going to art house cinemas and i love supporting like these small places it yeah it can be very pricey yeah. and it, particularly if you know you want to go out for a night out or whatever you know they can the, the, the price can really rack up and I think it also, you know, like it winning Best Picture really does put a a um, put a spotlight on it in a way that wasn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily be there otherwise. If it was just very acclaimed Korean film Parasite, then I think you know you would get some eyes on it. But the fact that it did win Best Picture and it was a movie that, comparatively speaking, not that many people had seen, I think really does kind of boost people's desire to check it out, thinking, oh, this is like the Korean movie that everyone loved and that won Best Picture, you know, the first foreign language film to ever win Best Picture, you know, I should I should check it out. And I think that combined with, like, word of mouth of, like, people who would not usually see it, like my mum, who I took to go and see Parasite, like, she really liked it and, like, told a lot of her friends about it and was like, you know, yeah, I went to see this Korean film. I wouldn't usually see it, but I really liked it. I think that also plays a big part in it as well. Like, now people have the chance to see this movie that people they like know and know would not necessarily be into Korean cinema uh, have been raving about for months. In other news, uh, kind of coronavirus related, it was announced that Comic-Con has been cancelled for the first time in its 51-year history. Uh, probably not that surprising because so many events have obviously been cancelled over the last couple of months as the lockdowns and quarantines have become more widespread. But kind of surprising because I had already assumed it had happened. Kind of seemed like something that would have happened a while ago, considering. Yes. In a situation that we're all in, a hundred thousand people being crammed together in, in over several days in a uh, conference hall doesn't seem great. No, I wonder if some people are just hoping they don't have to announce, and they're just mm. thinking like, "Will we put a press release together, or do we just hope everyone assumes it's not going to happen?" Mm, yeah, or like trying to because I, I think there are certain clauses like you know force majeure stuff for big events like that and maybe the organizers are like trying to figure out how long they can hold off before having to invoke that sort of stuff and risk losing a ton of money mm. 
Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that because that's always like a big event for, certainly for like Disney since they have been in the Marvel business. Like that's always been where they announce their big stuff, and it'll be interesting to see if they shift that to online and you get like a bunch of Apple style keynotes where they just talk about you know this is what we're working on and this is the trailer for the Eternals if it ever comes out <laughs> you know kind of or if like everyone just like defers that for like a year if everyone just decides uh probably everything's a bit up in the air now we don't want to make any promises uh it would be it'd be weird if but I guess kind of cool if they tried to do like zoom panels with like cast and crew of things like that obviously um probably without a QA, and a because I could only imagine how much of a disaster that would be um, via Zoom. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it could be interesting to see how they respond to this and how it maybe alters what Comic-Con does going forward. Mm-hmm. If like, they, they see that maybe it's a good idea just to have people talk to someone who's interested in their work and interview them on stage and then not have people come up and ask silly questions. But maybe <laughs> the audience grow. <laughs> And uh, finally, in our news, uh, sad news that uh, Brian Dennehy passed away. Brian Dennehy was a kind of like cla- uh, character actor who worked prolifically in film and television and on the stage, particularly. Uh, so he was someone who, even if people may not know his name, like chances are they saw something that he was in. He's one of those sort of character actors. Like I know, I always think of him as the um, the villain in First Blood, where he's uh, absolutely terrific and genuinely a very kind of menacing figure. Uh, pursuing John Rambo and but but when you look at his uh, filmography you also see him like you know voicing uh, Remy the Rat's dad in Ratatouille which is probably arguably probably his most high profile role of like the highest grossing film he was in mm. um, he was on TV a lot he was uh, he also would work with people like Peter Greenaway <laughs> which you know he kind of has one of those careers where he touched on so many different different spheres um, that it, it like pretty much everyone who worked with him or knew him or you know were just fans of his work seemed to just have a tremendous amount of affection for him and in reading people's tributes to him it made me just like really sad even though it was not something I would ever necessarily have had a chance to do because I've never been to Chicago or anything but like really sad and never seen him on the stage because literally everyone who talked about him like as a stage actor would just uh, it completely in awe of how well he controlled the stage and how much he you know kind of like dominated in these great works of american fiction yeah oh see to me he will always be ted montague the big daddy in uh, mm-hmm. romeo and juliet opposite paul savino um yeah yeah it's such a shame like i think this is it as well like there's something very specific we're uh, still being here in in the uk um and it's and it's something i feel about philip seymour hoffman as well like the amount mm-hmm. of American actors who were so great on the stage, because there's that old adage, isn't it? Which is what film makes you famous, TV makes you rich, and theatre makes you good. So yeah. I think it, it's very difficult to actually judge an actor until you've seen them on stage, because I think that is truly where you see people at their absolute best. And so yeah, not not having that option at all ever is is really sad. Same as like wanting to see musicians live as well mm. it's such a difference like I'm gutted I never got to see Prince live I think that would have been quite quite a show yeah uh, a friend of the show Zoe Jays um, I have told her on multiple occasions that the most jealous I've ever been of anyone was when the venue she runs in London hosted a secret Prince gig oh. um, 
where he had performed and then he was like did a like little after i think he, he had performed like a full gig and then he basically did a one in like a small room and it's honestly the most jealous i've ever been of anyone <laughs> it just sounds like that would have been the most incredible thing agreed agreed maybe no more small room gigs in future but even even still that's that's the one yeah well i think what we'll do is we'll just have everyone in big theater in like stadiums but with opera glasses so like <laughs> you can just be you'd only sell 200 seats to the o2 arena um but everyone gets to sit far back and you know hold up the little things and go oh how how droll <laughs> So our topic this week is, I guess, the um, power of writers or the erasure of writers, maybe. Um, this was uh, inspired by a tweet that you sent to me from Joel Morris of the uh, Rule of Three podcast, who was uh, responding to a tweet by uh, Sanjeev Kohli, who is an actor and writer who had posted a video which was kind of from two years ago for the 20th anniversary of goodness gracious me the kind of seminal uh british uh sketch show uh which was uh, you know kind of had this this sketch this famous sketch uh where uh, an english man goes to work for an indian company his name's jonathan and none of his co-workers can pronounce his name and start talking about how you know he'll be uh, he'll become a nuisance if he keeps insisting on people pronouncing those difficult multi-syllable English names it's like an incredibly funny subversion of you know the typical Indian or Pakistani experience in the UK where people show up with names that are perfectly easy to pronounce and then everyone insists on not and in this video they play clips on the sketches and they have talking heads people who worked on the show people who were inspired by the show and all this sort of stuff but the person they didn't interview was Sanjeev Kohli who wrote it and he just replied, replied quote, quote tweeted it saying I wrote this and uh, then Joel Morris kind of went on this thing talking about the way in which writers generally are not kind of valued and their contribution to these sort of like classics of of comedy are often unless they are in the sketch themselves you know if you're talking about like Python or whatever uh, often kind of ignored and erased and it seemed like an, uh, an interesting kind of topic to talk about in the way in which you know writing is the lifeblood of pretty much any kind of art really uh, any kind of mm. dramatic or comedic uh, storytelling and yeah it's it's it, this is certainly true in like an economic sense as well but it's there unless you are you know, a showrunner or someone who just has become famous as a writer, of which there are, you know, kind of precious few people, it's very hard to kind of find a writer who is credited and given their fair shake of, you know, what they've contributed to this work because their work is, their, their contribution is often, like, invisible. It is weird how this is such an interesting case study, though, because mm. the BBC Cup video, which is meant to be a celebration of Goodness Gracious Me, which is one of the best comedies... Um, sketch shows that Britain has produced in the mm. past like well 30 years like hands down it's incredible but we start off with the very first sketch of the very first series is the lead into this video and there's so much lauding about it and all you know set the tone and it was so great and what Joel Morris I think manages to pull out really charitably in this thread is that it's not the fault of uh, he says it's not the fault of the production or the performers this is standard 
it's the way we are used to talking about jokes and paying for them that comedy doesn't belong to the writers, people without whom it wouldn't exist. Authorship somehow doesn't extend to laughs. And I think it's interesting that he's bringing in, like, concepts of things like authorship and belonging and the system of paying for them. And then Katie Brand, who's also a comedian, replies, and she pitches in by saying it's quite particular to sketch shows... Um, writers of sitcoms are known and rightly lauded even when they don't appear but in an old sketch show it can easily just all mesh together when it shouldn't someone should have thought to ask here though and it is there is something something's gone awry here because there will be bbc residuals and this happened recently in a much more sort of misogynistic profile bent way with gavin and stacy and mm. chat about James Corden and no mention of Ruth Jones. There had to be a huge kind of, again, there was a big Twitter backlash in the ways that Twitter backlashes can be quite useful to mm. to change that because James Corden has a larger global profile than Ruth Jones does. But they wrote that show together and mm. BBC, because I've dealt with BBC <laughs> um, delivery documents before, it, it says who's written stuff. It says what everyone's due. And I think there is something in the nature of sketch shows where there is a kind of writer's room culture. You don't really mm. get it in the UK beyond that, apart from maybe like soaps. But drama in particular is normally one writer. Um, yeah. And... I think it's so interesting because so much of it is based on the visibility, right? And the profile of the writer. Mm. And Sanjay Kohli is hilarious and like, you know, a huge celebrity where I am in Glasgow because he's Naveed and still game. Like, mm-hmm. He's, he's huge on a UK level, not so much. And the argument may be that he should be because he was a writer on goodness gracious me. But I watched the, the Hollywood reporter I love their round tables that are all on YouTube. Um, probably better to stick to that, Emily, than watching um, high school theatre. <laughs> to critique it. <laughs> oh, God. Their, writer, <laughs> the, their writer's round table recently, I think it must have been, it would have been 2019 because it's uh, Lorene Scafaria, Taika Waititi, Casey Lemons, but this Anthony McCartan. And it's interesting that three of them no four sorry four of them are writer directors Mm. Casey Lemons and Taika Waititi are both actors as well but Casey Lemons isn't in Harriet whereas Taika Waititi is in Jojo Rabbit right Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting that like and the way that they sort of talk to each other and Taika Waititi being very diplomatic talking about Marvel is hilarious and Scorsese's criticism in particular And I just think, when you think of Taika Waititi, he's managed to create a career where he can just be Taika Waititi. He doesn't have to be multi-hyphenate, right? Taika Waititi, you're like, oh, he makes films, he's in them, he writes them. He's generally quite funny, but he's got a darkness to him. And you can say that very simply in keywords, like he has become a brand because he's got that global profile, because he's built that over years and years and years. Whereas someone like the majority of other writers and I'm thinking mainly of like I mean you look at The Good Place 
And I think what's interesting about the Good Place Writers Room is that a lot of them have really strong social media presences and have for years, but it's more people like who 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 will be in front of the camera, like Megan Amram, Demi, oh God. Eddie Juive. Thank you, Ed, thank you. I, I wanted to say it and then I knew I was going to get it wrong and then I hesitated worse, <laughs> which is ironic considering the kickoff is this sketch where uh, people can't pronounce other people's names due to sort of an inverse of colonialism. So yes, I hate myself right now. I hope everyone... I, I think I've, I've heard Demi on podcasts and things like that. He seems very chill about the fact that some people struggle with his name. Oh, bless him, because I struggle so much and I'm, I'm so sorry. But these are people who are not, and I use heavy air quotes in this, just writers. Mm. I think there's still this tension between are you one of the people that your work is done because no one thinks that you exist like it's invisible um much like editing or are we are we that kind of obsessed about sort of like profiles and things that we need to see people and their faces and their characters more and more to actually engage with them um Mm. and the way that writers particularly late night writers have been attacked in terms of like unions and just kind of churning out trying to churn out jokes and seeing how all of the people that you know now writers wise have worked for years in probably poorly paid (laughs) rooms to to get to that position Mm. it's interesting because the germans in, in german film theory you don't have the auteur who is the director, the, the author of the film, is the writer of the film. <laughs> um, mm. So I think in film and TV, TV more so it could be like writer, but I think it's just this writer-director hyphenate, which is amazing that people who are that talented and can write write their vision and then direct and deliver their vision, you know, that's brilliant, but I can't help but be horribly cynical and think that there is a kind of bundle aspect to it, and it's going back to the kind of golden age of Hollywood fact, well, factory sort of line idea of it's like, oh, well, if we don't have to pay two people's health insurance, then so much the better. Mm. I think there is, you're, you're right in that it's kind of definitely, it ties into like the broader economic situation, I think, in terms of what it is to be a writer now, that people are maybe feel the pressure to be multiple things. Um, I know, like, whenever I hear, you know, people who have been TV writers for a long time talk about how things have changed recently, like, a lot of them talk about how the glut of content that we've been going to, particularly in television over the last, like, 10 years or so, has led to a little bit of a more precarious situation for writers, because it used to be you know you could sign on for a show the show would run for like could run for years and years and years and you would have like a fairly stable sense of like you know i'm gonna work on this show they're gonna be 22 episodes a season it's gonna run, if it runs for five seasons you know i can buy a house or whatever and then you know like it won't necessarily set you up for life but it kind of puts you in a place of like reasonable stability to maybe weather you know a dry year or two um, and if you can keep getting hired by different shows, then more the better. Whereas now, because shows have shorter seasons, there's less money we're getting paid per episode. The production seasons are also shorter, so people are getting paid less that way. 
um, because fewer episodes are being made, fewer ones are being aired, so like residuals and things like that tend not to be as lucrative as they were in the past, and also just in terms of the very notion of like syndication, I think syndication is not as valuable as it used to be, just because you know so much stuff goes on to streaming, and I think as is often the case with a lot of these situations digital rights and residuals and things like that haven't were not like really worked out in the last time there was a big WGA negotiation <laughs> so people maybe aren't getting the sort of money you would expect to get if you know they write for a sitcom that then plays on uh, on Netflix and gets like hundreds of millions of views like you know I'm not sure that the people who worked on The Office are necessarily seeing a huge amount of money from that for example but also and I think that is one of the reasons why you have so many younger writers who kind of feel like they have to be they have to have a presence on they had to have a presence on Vine they definitely have to have a presence on Twitter because they can get their name out there maybe they have some tweets that go viral and they can point to that as proof that they're funny you know and have meetings and people want that kind of sense of the of what their broader personality is what is that do they have a big following that could also just bring people to the show like 20 years ago like you didn't need to have a kind of personality as a writer essentially outside of you know what you put into your work like there was no sense of like you have to be able to get out there and promote the thing that you wrote other than you know you write it you get your paycheck and you go home there is definitely like just just the way in which social media has proliferated and the way in which the support um, system in place for writers in terms of how much money they actually get to make from these things has kind of degraded yeah. so much. Yeah, for sure. It, yeah, it, it definitely feels as if it's created this system where people feel like they can't just, you know, focus on the writing. They have to be constantly hustling. And some people can thrive in that environment, like Demi, Demi Adigiwebe, as we, we mentioned, he, you know, kind of is, he's just kind of like very creative and is constantly doing stuff like his, like, um, the raps at the end of movies that he did for a while where he pretended to be Will Smith coming up with the the end of film rap for like The Shape of Water or whatever like those are all very funny his um, September 21st videos are always a highlight but I think I feel like there's a lot of writers who feel very uncomfortable with that situation of suddenly being like oh not only do I have to you know put together a portfolio and write things and you know just kind of make that side of the job work I also need to be constantly selling myself and trying to get my name out there in a way that maybe necessarily wasn't necessarily the case you know 20 years ago in tv unless you were like and even outside of tv the only kind of people who were like that previously be like someone like a norman mailer who makes such a big name of themselves that they can just be like yeah i'm gonna write books but i'm also gonna you know be a guest on television shows and things like that yeah it's a really high bar now I think Mm. and there is this idea that it's about exposure isn't it and yeah it's the freelance pithy saying of will people die from exposure um and it's like (laughs) well what about pay and it's the idea of hustling of like oh well if you show yourself more and you do more things that will equal more money and it's like actually maybe we're all finally starting to realize the meritocracy is a lie it's a beautiful Mm. thing if you have so many ideas and that the internet provides a platform for you that's wonderful i don't want to do that down at all but in terms of getting hired there is this idea of twitter being simultaneously like a portfolio and a notebook but it Mm. is all public and yeah 
writers I notice don't do what a lot of journalists do, which is have a professional account and a personal one. There's no... That boundary's completely gone for any writer that I've seen on Twitter. Some of them are, like, wonderful. Like, I mean, I'm such a huge John August fan because I think he's just so transparent and helpful and is there, like, as a real sort of community kind of node. Like, he's such a strong node in wanting to, like, create this network and for everyone to help each other out. Um, And he does writing sprints... Like, and I think that's a really nice way of using your profile. But he came up as a writer, in, you know, before Web 2.0. Mm, yeah. So, and that's great. And, and I don't mean that to diminish him at all. It's to say that it's great that he's using his relative security. And again, no one really wants to show how precarious things are because we live in this meritocracy and it's the idea that if things are precarious for you then you just must not be working hard enough and that's not it at all like you say like in terms of residuals and royalties like i remember the first time i went to la i was 18 years old on like the best school trip i ever went on god knows how we managed to do it i don't know if it's still running anymore but it was great and i got to meet striking writers (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, during during the writer's strike and it was incredible because it was like they were literally asking for what they were due and I know I'm like such a, you know, so left I'm practically on the floor. But these weren't, these aren't people who are like being greedy. And it's interesting seeing, again, so going into journalism a bit, more and more online sort of, um, publishers going, getting unionized, um, yeah. which I think is a really good sign. Um, but yeah, with, I think because. TV and film writing I think I think about fridge magnets a lot Ed mm. and you know those little fridge magnets that are always like don't understand me just love me mm-hmm. it's yeah. kind of like, and it's a bit like memes like that, that was proto memes right like little mm-hmm. things phrases that you could recognise and could pass on and that's the thing with jokes if you can remember it you can pass it on it's harder to you know and you can quote films and, and TV and they do become part of your cultural lexicon and like part of your personality. And so I think people feel, do feel an authorship over them in a way they don't think they're stealing something. <laughs> or, mm, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'm also, you, you don't want to get into a position where we're talking about intellectual property because I really don't know enough to talk about it. But on a deep fundamental level, I'm like, I want people to be able to feel free. I, I believe so strongly in fair use. Yeah. But it's really difficult when the system isn't structured to let people be paid properly for that in the first place. Mm, yeah. I think also, because also play, playing into this is like every time there's like a WGA writer strike or whatever, then there's like loads of people who just start being, you know, kind of talking about, oh, these like millionaires who are like trying to kind of like gouge money out of people and things like that. And you, I think there's a problem is that there's just a general lack of transparency about how those things work. Like if you talk to someone about residuals, they think, oh, you know, you must be making hand over fist because you wrote an episode of Seinfeld or something. Yeah. But like when you ever hear someone talk about residuals, it's like, yeah, it's like a couple, like $50 or something every so often or things like that. Unless you wrote like an absolute, unless you were like the creator of an absolute mega hit, chances are you're, um, residuals for something you wrote a long time ago are probably not that high and so there's this perception that if you write for TV or you write for movies that you must be like you know set for life because a lot of the like 
imagery that Hollywood presents of itself of what it's like to write and direct movies or TV is usually like you live in a big house up in the hills and you know you kind of have a a bunch of money to spend when that is like something that's really for very few people like you know people are either in film and tv they're either like struggling writers who are like living in a dirt cheap apartment and struggling to pay rent or you're like a, a millionaire who like has all this like splendor around them when in fact for a lot of people it's like you're probably like working fairly consistently but you're still living in like a not great house because la is really expensive to live in and it's like you're barely keeping your head above water even though you like write for a show that's like one of the 10 most popular shows in the country or a show that people are watching um hundreds of times hundreds of thousands if not millions of times on netflix you know there's just this general sense and, and you know also i think there is a lack of understanding about how television particularly in america is written like the whole writer's room thing and i'm i would not claim to be an expert on it because it sometimes confuses me as well but like you know the, the question of just because your name is on the credit for an episode doesn't necessarily mean that you wrote the whole thing yourself yeah. I, maybe there was a pitch meeting where everyone sat around and pitched ideas and then you were handed the draft so like technically it's co-authored from a lot of people but you did a lot of the work or you have a situation you know, like Seinfeld where for the first seven seasons of that show yeah first seven until Larry David left like the process was they would have pitch meetings people would sit and write them and then they would assign out individual episodes to individual writers or to writing teams and then the week the episode was filmed larry david and jerry seinfeld would lock themselves in their room and just rewrite the whole thing to make sure that it fit you know the the, the tenor and the tone of the show that they'd created yeah and like that's in terms of assessing authorship like that's incredibly messy so it's like yeah. And that's why you get people asking questions like, if someone says they worked for The Simpsons, they get like, oh, which characters do you write for? It's like, well, it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there is a lot of, that's the beauty of a writer's room, that everyone can help each other and um, generate ideas at the beginning. And it's like, mm. and I think the way that I try to think of that is like, it's great if you use your creativity in service to the show, but then the show has to be in service to you back. You mm. have to be compensated. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a base rate at least for writers. And then, you know, because artistic credit starts to get very tricky. Like if there's a certain plot twist, everyone's mm. like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, I wonder how they did it on Breaking Bad. Because of course, Breaking Bad is legendary for this writer's room setup, but then each episode was kind of shared out to each of those writers um yeah. so they all felt a kind of like and i think that's an interesting way to do it when everyone has a sense of ownership in the overall series and then wants to make their mark possibly on an episode but they still feel part of all of it mm, yeah. but then but then it's the difficulty and i and again it's difficult to get into very sticky territory when you talk about whether you feel recognized and accredited versus have you been paid for it and i keep thinking about in terms of uh clapping for carers at the moment that bit in mad men where peggy's like what about thank you and don says that's what the money is for mm-hmm. yeah and i think they're both making excellent points <laughs> <laughs> so we end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week it's just gonna have to be fetch the bolt cutters ed mm, I, yeah. and also a really lovely 
video on Twitter of Fiona Apple discovering that some uh, teenagers in Italy have been singing one of her songs. Like, seeing someone, some like it's it's in terms of a subgenre of reaction video, like seeing celebrities or artists, maybe both, reacting to people having such a strong feeling to their own work is lovely. So a bit of both. If the album starts to get too much, maybe just whack that on. Great, yeah, I'll second that. Fetch the bulk, because it's, it's one of my... Well, it's early in the year and no one's releasing anything, but it's certainly <laughs> one of the best albums I've heard this year. Um, and yeah, I think it more than lives up to the, to the hype of you know all these years of expectation uh, from uh, people who have been fans of her, her work for a long time and I think it's a really good starting point for anyone who wants to hop on board with Fiona Apple uh, now so yeah so I'll second that I mentioned it earlier but um, I, I really recommend the video game Dead Cells which I've been playing uh, a lot of it's on a bunch of consoles I play it on PS4 which I think is one of the better places to play it because I've heard bad things about the Switch port apparently it doesn't run that smoothly on PS4 it works fine but that is a, a tremendously fun game. It's a run-based game in which you play this kind of like character who starts off in the base of this this kind of like dungeon of a castle that's kind of being eaten away by this mysterious malaise um, that has kind of like turned everyone into horrible creatures and you have to fight your way up the castle to, you know, for all these different levels. And as you go along, you you know pick up power ups and different weapons and things like that. And it's uh, tremendously fun. The fighting in it is is super accessible. Even though some of the enemies can be quite difficult, it's really fun. Like working out all of which weapons suit your style of playing. And uh, it only takes like forty minutes or so to reach the final boss. If you're you're just kind of like even if you just kind of like blaze through it, you could probably get through in like twenty minutes or so. Um, but uh, so and every time you die you go right back to the beginning and you can just start again so it's a really nice game to just kind of like pick up and play if you're trying to relax at the end of the day and the kind of upgrading element of it is you find blueprints for different weapons and you kind of collect the cells that are the currency in the game to kind of build it up it gives you this like tremendous sense of replayability to kind of like unlock things and then try them out the next time you play through and there's kind of a fun weird sense of humour to the whole thing like as you go along you see different messages about you know what happened to the castle and the lore and things like that and everyone uh, and they're all kind of like darkly funny and your character can't talk because he's essentially just like sentient moss that has taken over a dead body uh, so every <laughs> so time you kind of talk to people they just seem really annoyed with you and you can't respond <laughs> so it's like it's a very very funny very weird game that i've really really been enjoying i complete i, I defeated the final boss for the first time this morning and uh, went immediately back to start playing it again because it is just the sort of thing that's just a real nice kind of like sit back, you know, put your feet up, listen to a podcast and just kind of like zone out, you know, trying to figure out what the best weapon in the game is. Uh, for my money, if anyone's interesting, it's the electric whip, which seems wildly overpowered. <laughs> um, maybe that's just the way that I play it. But yeah, I, I got an electric whip on my winning round and then basically just like cruised right to the final boss pretty easily. But yeah, so that's Dead Cells, and like I said, it's available pretty much everywhere. I think it's going fairly cheaply on PS4 at the moment as part of their endless series of sales. So yeah, so check it out. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 